I'm Alka Khuri and host of the podcast South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell teaching film literature gender and human rights. In South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. My guest today is Dr. Tanmeen Sethi, a board-certified integrative family medicine physician and clinical associate professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine, who spent the last 25 years on the front lines practicing primary care, working in global trauma and community activism. I'll be talking to her today about her debut book, Joy is My Justice. This book is a deep dive into cultivating and practicing joy in the face of oppression and day-to-day hardships. In her book, Dr. Sethi makes a compelling case for spinning the dominant narratives of eternal doom, despair, and loneliness shaped by our capitalist, individualistic society. Dr. Sethi is not coming from a place of false positivity, but rather argues that joy thrives through resilience She challenges the idea that people will always be stuck in their ways, unable to lead fulfilling lives, and provides methods to rewire one's brain. Her book provides countless techniques and bits of advice that people can use in their daily lives to tackle fear, negative thinking, and anxiety. Dr. Sethi joins me from Seattle. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Absolutely. Thank you for joining the show. So you write about the difference between happiness and joy. While happiness is a cognitive construct, joy is what your body knows and is familiar with. Do you think the average person recognizes those differences? Most consider both emotions synonymous with one another, but you describe joy as a more complex, multidimensional thing. Do you see any similarities between the two? There are similarities, but there are very important nuanced differences, which you refer to. And I think that most people do not recognize what I'm about to explain as the nuances because they are not given to us in that way. I think the mental health conversation actually does a disservice to us, especially those of us on the fringes of the dominant society. So there are overlaps in the sense that both involve pleasure involve a state of well-being that we all enjoy and strive for, that we balance out in terms of what our hardships are. We want to have more joy and happiness. I think both are welcome and both are beautiful. I really mean that. What I think is different, though, is that happiness is presented to us in a binary construct. It is a state of emotion that is by definition not possible to exist if we're angry, sad, grieving, or fearful. And what I want people to understand is that joy is a different nuanced conversation. It's saying that we can have expansiveness and ease in our body that can help hold the hard. Happiness doesn't allow for that entire conversation. So when we realize that by actually sitting with and facing our pain, by acknowledging it, by giving it deep reverent gratitude, by allowing it to be present and not a sign that we are broken, 
By doing all that, joy allows us a wider container to hold everything that we're experiencing. You write about how people often respond to other people's pain with comments like, look on the bright side, and other such comments. I'm not sure if the false positivity is a uniquely American thing, and I really don't believe that most people are just unable to validate other people's feelings. I think for most people, they just don't know how else to respond, and everyone's burdened with their own troubles. Mm-hmm. Are there ways we can, as a society, move beyond those unhelpful but ill-intentioned comments? It'll take longer to transform our care systems, but how can we, in our day-to-day interactions, transform the way we respond to others who are struggling? I think your question is so important, Alka, and so complex, really. What I think, I completely agree with you. I don't think people are trying to say things that are not helpful. I think they are trying to say what they can to others who are in struggle. I want people to understand that actually the more we try to be with others in their emotions, the more we try to acknowledge, honor, and say that what you are feeling is real and I am willing to be here with you in it, the less we actually try to fix people, to make it seem like the only job for them is to be okay. When we say look on the bright side, nobody has an ill intention around that, but what they are doing is fixing it because they're uncomfortable with pain or distress. And so this is a bigger cultural shift that can take time, but what I would invite, and it's just an invitation, but I would invite people to As much as possible, imagine being with people in their pain instead of trying to fix it. And that is the nuance that can really shift us. I found the relationship between trauma and DNA really enlightening. I didn't know that trauma can transform DNA and that these deeper neurological responses can be passed down through generations. How much control do we have over how we respond to trauma? Certain circumstances are genuinely quite scarring, while others might entail situations that a person can consciously breathe through and process healthily. Once the damage is done, is it already changing the DNA? Can people do work afterwards to mitigate any of that? These are the important questions that are being studied right now. What is reassuring is that we already see that people can change their DNA with different ways of being, different habits, different dietary interventions, different ways of modifying our thoughts and our patterns and our ways of reacting. Is it possible to always do that in the moment? No. And I think that people's trauma does change their DNA and they don't have control over that until later. When they have the capacity and the space to do the things that I talk about in the book. And so I think what's really important is for people, I hope that people listening hear this message, you are not broken, your body and mind have done what they need to do to protect you, and now that does not serve you for too long. It is now your opportunity to go in and modify that. You write about challenging the ways we write our stories based on what life gives us what we give life. The value in refusing to accept defeat stood out to me as a major theme in the book. You also mentioned how we can make small changes incrementally to tackle the belief that we are just eternally doomed to misery. 
For people who might be working very long hours, have families to take care of, and experience several factors that limit the time they have for active reflection, what are ways they can transform the way they think about their lives? They might be more limited in free time and mental space, but surely that doesn't mean that they have no methods to rewrite their stories. I completely agree, and that feels like uh, touching on part of my life's work. When I work with people, I always try to stress this idea that moment to moment is what matters. Yes, it's beautiful to have free time to actively reflect and take long meditation or long walks or what have you. All of that is welcome. But it is the moment to moment tending to your heart and soul in the day that can make the biggest change. And I'll just give people a practical example. When we do studies in people who caretake for others, elderly or young in their family who they have to become a caregiver for, what we find is those people's stress is so high that we can see in their genes that their life expectancy actually decreases from the stress. And what we see is that they can make changes by doing simple interventions. So what I mean is, yes, you are working long hours. But how many of those hours are you spending in your breath being held and constricted? The more we allow our breath to deepen, create space in our body, activates our vagus nerve, tells us we are safe and calms our fear centers. How many times in the day in those long hours are you berating yourself? Maybe for not getting a different job as if that was your fault, right? Or not having the time to be with your family because you're providing for them. In those times of berating, we are further heightening our fear centers. How can you use in the moment with simple techniques, self-compassion to remind yourself you are okay, you are safe, you are all right right now. Life may be unfair, but you are okay right now. So there are many more ways like that, but I just want to give an example of how this idea of caring for yourself has been hyper-capitalized in our society to be when you have free time, when you can take a vacation, when you can get to the spa or the nail salon. And the truth is, none of that is as deeply liberating in our body. Of course, I mean, I would love all of us to have all of that. But it's not the deep liberation I'm talking about in these practices where we can still give ourselves that justice in our body. And so I really want people listening to understand that there is a way that this is a deep, innate human right that we need to reclaim. I really enjoyed what you wrote about the why me versus why not me perspective. I think people naturally respond to situations thinking that they either deserve something or they didn't deserve something. It's really a ludicrous concept when you think about children born into poverty as compared to children born into comfortable lives. Neither deserve what they get. A lot of life is happenstance, and a lot is influenced by historical, social, political, and economic factors. Do you have any theories as to why we, as humans, are attached to the idea that we either do or don't deserve things? Do we just feel the need to attach meaning to things? I think about this when people say that everything happens for a reason. Perhaps things just happen. I agree. They just happen. 
I think it comes from deeply rooted beliefs. Two things. One is whatever beliefs we've been given from our cultural ancestral families or communities. Some are limiting, some are freeing. Also, our deep sense of self-worth that happens to also be closely related to the first. And this idea of questioning our worth and what we deserve is also partly overlapping with that nervous system's desire to resist what is so hard. So why does this happen to me? I don't want this. Why? What could I have done to deserve this? Because this is not something any human would desire. I think it's so complex, but deeply woven in is the fact that it is deeply difficult to be human in an inhumane and unjust world. In fact, I'm reminded of Albert Camus' novel, The Plague, where he talks about the absurdity of human existence. And he asks this question by means of various characters, why we deserve to die, why this young child deserved to die, this young innocent child to die. So he really is having this argument with himself and with the reader about the futility of actually thinking about this predetermined life, the baggage of the predetermined life that we come with. And instead of sort of really thinking about why human beings go through certain experiences, whether they deserved it or not, one needs to just forget about that. It doesn't help you at all. And so the most important thing is to get on with the here and now and get on with life. Yes. But to also, I would add one nuance to that is that I think also the reason we are conditioned to think we deserve or don't deserve are these larger systems of oppression that by definition thrive and have flourished based on the fact that they beat us down and take our humanity and self-worth away. And these systems thrive when we do not. And so by definition, the more they can smack us out of self-worth, the more they get to stay in power. And so I think that this is Really, what you're bringing up is a deep, please teach a whole semester on this, but what is deeply inherent in this is this idea that people feel like it's their fault when in fact, as you said, there are centuries of reasons of why we've come to certain kinds of traumas and suffering, right? And then there's just the happenstance of life. People don't deserve to have their partner die early. They don't deserve to lose their job. They don't deserve, you know, I could go on and on. But there's just a lot in there. It's a complex human condition. You write about your friend who lost her husband and how to work through piling on anxiety, you have to let sadness coexist with other emotions rather than just letting it intertwine with the fear of things never being the same again. How much does time play a role in this? Do people have to consciously think about their lives differently, particularly when dealing with loss and grief? Or does time play a larger role in how people think about their lives and how wounds are healed? Yeah, you know, we hear this all the time, time heals, right? I will say yes and no. I say time gives us space to heal, but it depends on what is happening for us in that space. If we're struggling with poverty, oppression, and more and more trauma over and over in that time, it may get harder to heal. If we are spending that time 
in isolation without community or support or nature, it may be harder. But if that space of time is allowing us resources and capacity to tend to our heart, to practice these exercises, the knowledge, the power of liberation in our body, yes, time can be a beautiful thing. I think this idea that time heals is almost a way to give up on giving people these resources, this capacity. So it's nuanced for me. I agree. It almost sounds like uh, people abdicating their responsibilities and washing their hands off yes. and say, well, you know, just go away and yes. take your time and you'll be all right without thinking about incorporating structures of support or providing those structures of support. And our whole medical system is predicated on this horrible practice of diagnosing certain psychological and psychiatric conditions based on time. If you had these symptoms too long, if your bereavement lasted too long, who gets to say that, right? So these arbitrary time constraints, I agree with you. So tell me one thing, why does memory fade over time, but trauma doesn't? psychological trauma doesn't. Why? Yeah, I think we don't have all the answers on that, but I do have a few theories and things that have been studied too. One is that we are evolutionarily primed to remember the negative. It's been shown over and over. That is how we have survived. Because if we remember what could kill us or hurt us, we will survive longer. Out in the wild, you know, back in the day. That has stayed with us and it is why we are able to survive now. That predication on the negative and the fearful, clearly in a moment of abject trauma, of feeling unsafe, of feeling lost, our body's going to remember that and say, look out for this again. There is science though to show that those traumatic memories get amplified and even distorted, honestly, over time by our continued hypervigilance in the world. So it almost cycles on itself. The other thing I think is that, you know, we actually do remember more than we think, but the positive tends to fade out because we forget to swim in that joy. We forget to swim in the things that show us our power that show us our resilience. Again, a little bit of evolution to survive, but also that brain's way of saying, hey, look out for this. We could go over moments and moments of what suffering people go through in this life. How could they forget that when their brain has told them that this may be the worst thing that ever happened, right? And we all remember moments of trauma, even when we lost someone, we remember exactly where we were when we found out. It imprints in our body. But there's one extra piece to this that's not studied in science. It's just my clinical theory after 25 years that I tell patients all the time, which is, that's not true. This is somewhat studied. This is studied um, through Bessel van der Kolk's work and uh, many others in trauma and embodied trauma. But the way that I phrase it to patients is my own theory, is that what the mind and heart cannot resolve the body will hold on to. And I think we hold on to it until we can heal. That's really beautiful. Really beautiful. You write about experiencing awe and how that can give people a greater appreciation for existence and strengthen one's sense of humanity. I got the sense 
that a great deal of experiencing awe has to do with expanding your perspective of existence, recognizing that you're a small yet significant part of something much larger. For people with anxiety and other disorders, the world can feel incredibly suffocating and claustrophobic, which surely makes it harder to experience awe. For people who might feel trapped on a day-to-day basis, how can they lean into this expanded worldview to experience awe? I think it starts very simply with an exercise like I speak of in the book that's been studied called the awe walk. It means just committing, and I would say committing if you're able-bodied, able to walk, and you have safe space, it can be city or nature, it does not need to be one or the other, they've shown that. A five-minute, 10-minute commitment once a week, even, and just say, I'm going to see what gives me awe on this walk. That's a very different way of taking a walk than saying, I'm going to go to relax and just get my mind clear. Do a simple practice of looking for awe. Is it the leaf that turned a different color? Is it the building in front of you and the beautiful corner of that building? You know, I I don't know. Whatever it is to you, it really doesn't matter. And they don't say this in the study, but I modify the awe walk for people and say, if you're in a wheelchair, do an awe roll. If you can't walk, sit on a bench and look around you. Let's not let these studies confine us. Let's use the power of the study to show us the capacity of what we can do when we enter into a very simple exercise with intention. You differentiate the three different kinds of fear and the difference between fear produced by a real threat versus fear produced by a perceived threat. I think a lot of people, especially young people, They feel that the latter is a more destructive fear in daily life. People can catastrophize easily, and sometimes momentary fear is extremely powerful, and what should be a perceived threat truly feels real. Yes. Are there ways that people can consciously distinguish the two, even after prolonged periods of time when perceived threats feel like the end of the world, especially for people with anxiety? It can be hard to hold on to fear when seemingly small things feel like the world is falling apart. Can neural pathways be rewritten to better separate real fear from perceived fear? Yes, but it takes time. That's that time to heal. And it takes intention. And it isn't very difficult, but it's not easy to start. Meaning the pathways are simple. Can you start with the foundations. Are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting access to food that nourishes you? Are you in a safe home or a safe neighborhood? And if those are not true, then how can I give my body a feeling of safety in some moments of the day? And how can I commit to giving it more and more moments as the days go on? Don't let your external circumstances dictate how your body translates this life to your brain, is what I would say to people. And so there are many tools in the book, but whether it be breath or whether it be using gratitude or things that have been shown to rewrite those pathways, remember that you can do that for yourself even in small moments. We don't need to change everything about our life 
and make vast new lifestyle habits that are all encompassing to feel change. We can feel it incrementally and actually it's probably more long lasting they find in the studies when we go slowly like that. So yes, yes, and yes. I was struck by what you mentioned just now about the value of getting a good night's sleep. Talk about that. Well, it, when sleep is foundational to all these practices, to be honest, because when we don't get enough sleep, actually our brain, we now know in the last 15 years of sleep science, since I've graduated from medical school, we've learned so much. And what we've learned is that actually there's two big things, there are many things, but two big things pertinent to our conversation that are happening in sleep is one, is we are actually almost like a lymphatic system in our brain, cleaning out toxic thoughts and toxins from our brain every night. It is almost impossible to think well, have capacity for decisions to make change when we are not getting enough sleep. Two is that sleep is actually when we reconsolidate memories of good. And when we are able to form those pathways so we can swim in that joy more. And so I really want to stress to people that there are foundational things that all of us should be human rights. We should all have the safety to have good sleep. But our anxiety can plague us to not do that. That's just one reason we may not sleep. We may also have real fear of not being safe at night. What if you're not feeling safe in your home, right? So there are many things I cannot change. (laughs) Otherwise, I would be well sought out after much more. But what I can change with you is how we change moment to moment and how we look at our body and our minds as sacred entities that deserve our care, even when the world has not given us what we need. And then there's also some kind of a competitive of lifestyle, where we're literally living our lives on the edge and trying to minimize our sleep because there's not enough hours in the day to do our work, to carry out the duties that we've given to ourselves. You are so right. And so people think that if I stay up a little longer and get this done, it will make today better. And I will tell you, there is never, never an hour you can spend on your computer that will be worth the hour of sleep. Never. You write very powerfully about having a sense of purpose in order to navigate the world with ease. You also make it clear that purpose should not be the strictly capitalistic notion of contributing to the economy, but rather purpose can just be getting out of bed during a particular difficult time, particularly for working class, poor communities. Do you think that when people's purposes is solely survival-based, really just getting through the day, is there a sense of dissatisfaction? Whereas people with more time and resources have the ability to commit a fulfilling purpose, people whose actions are primarily meant to keep them alive might not feel nourished or satisfied with their lives. They might even feel like they lack a sense of purpose because their lives are ruled by work. Are there specific ways these communities in particular should be thinking about this purpose? And in so many ways, it connects to the question that I asked you just now about, you know, how we deprive ourselves of sleep, for example. Just as one of the things that we do. Yeah, this is such a good question, Alka. I think that in this capitalist system, it can feel like I'm doing nothing. And so that is why we cannot feel like that purpose may be as nourishing. 
but it is clear in the studies, as biased as they are, which I talk about in the book, in terms of qualifying a sense of purpose, it is clear that people who have undergone extreme hardship can feel a greater sense of well-being when they acknowledge and feel their way of thriving and triumphing in the world. And I think it's triumph to get up every day and face this world again. I will tell you that this is a complex, I could have teach a semester on this, but I feel for me personally and with my patients, what I have found very powerful is to really reclaim some sense of ancestral reverence. So let me say what that means. If you are from a community that has been oppressed and suffered, and you are suffering now, I would invite you to take a moment to honor your ancestors who survived and persevered and fought and came through such hardship we can't imagine. That DNA is in you. It's not just the trauma. It's the resilience and the power of your ancestors that now sits in you. And if that sense of purpose of waking up every day to face it feels like not enough, remember that that was enough. And not only was it enough, it got them there to get you here now. When I feel that, I get chills. So I really invite us to reclaim purpose reclaim what we're doing every day and what we have gone through in ancestral terms to get here. And I think that purpose is sacred. A lot of the book illuminates the power of camaraderie, people helping each other through things. Can joy be reached and maintained alone? Are people who lack community and support systems able to achieve joy? I don't know because they're alone. I never talk to them, (laughs) but (laughs) it's possible, but I don't think it's easy. And I think it's the rarity. So what I tell people who feel isolated, who don't have community or support is actually related to our last conversation about ancestors. Can you draw on that community? Can you, in your imagery, draw on all the people who have persevered and gotten you where you are today? Can you draw on people around you who you may not even know? So are there teachers, role models, people you look up to? I give some imagery in the book of ways to do that. And I have found that to be incredibly powerful for people I work with. And I personally will tell you, I use that almost every day. And if I am in a particularly dark moment, I might draw on either a circle of people that I imagine as teachers to me who I've never met, but I follow their teachings. I also imagine in my particular case, mothers who have suffered. And I think about them and think, I am not alone. Other mothers have done this. They are with me now. Now, you could think that was, oh, you know, you're just imagining and that's not real community. But there is power in the neurochemistry of what that provides. It provides us the same hormones of connection and our same ways of dampening those threat centers. So I think that it can be a tool. I do think, though, it is very hard to feel joy if you cannot feel connected to others in some way, in that way, or in real life. But never forget your imagination. I think imagination is justice as well. 
And now my final question. How do you put your own theory into practice? How do you live your own work? Explain how it happens over a space of a day. So many ways. When I get out of bed in the morning and my feet graze the floor, I think right away a moment of gratitude. Another day has been given to me. I am here today and I am grateful. When I get in the shower, I imagine the water as golden rays of light, washing away every expectation I have of the day, whether it be for good or bad, and remembering that this is a day, it has potential. It may feel uncertain, but it has potential. May I be open to it today? I play music. I dance. I do gratitude every day with my family, actually, over dinner. I breathe every day. I mean, I'm telling you, I berate myself every day because I'm human. So then I practice self-compassion. I mean, there are ways so people will say, oh, do you have this down in quotes or whatever? Nobody has it down. That's why they call it a practice. So I would say I practice these things every day. And the only way, it's some form of combination of some of these every single day. When I'm crying and feeling dark, I put my hand on my heart and say, you are suffering. I am here with you. And then I look for a piece of gratitude, not to make my sadness okay, but to remember my story is far greater than this moment. I'm going to sit with this emotion, but I know that my story has more for me too. I mean, these are just the small ways. And then there are bigger meditation or whatever. I will tell you, there is no way I was way happier prior in my life, even with clinical bouts of severe depression, but I have never been as blissfully joyful because even my pain connects me to people who give me joy. There are many ways that I use this. And what I would invite others to do is understand that this practice, I want to stress that, this practice means you shout, scream, cry, and get scared. And joy is a container to hold all of that. It does not mean I walk around thinking life is perfect, but I do think life is perfection in all the ways that it comes to me. That is so beautiful. And while I said that was going to be my last question, one quick additional question. Why did you write this book? I wrote this book because so many people have asked me how I work with my patients and how I work with myself. But I wrote it for a bigger reason. And that is because when I started earnestly practicing joy as a container to hold all the hardship, I realized how much pain and trauma it liberated in my body. I realized that this joy was a deep human right that I had not accessed in these kind of profound ways. And I want everyone to feel that. So it has become my joy activism. And honestly, if there's any way, any small way that my son, who's a part of this book, that his story can touch others, it brings even more meaning and value to his already beautiful life. I love that. Joy activism. On that note, thank you so much for talking to me about your beautiful book. Thank you for holding my book so sacredly and tenderly and bringing me these questions. I mean it. Thank you. 
The production assistance for this episode was provided by the Language Learning Center, University of Washington, Seattle, and the student research assistant, Anaga Dirisala.